This goal-directedness is very central to who we are. And I'm not sure, as I think about it, uh, to what extent it's a good idea to build too much of that into artificial systems. We want them to be tools for our agreed-upon social goals, not self-directed agents. So I think there's issues there that need to be considered carefully. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the podcast and the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 124. And this episode is with Jay McClelland, who is Lucy Stern Professor in the Department of Psychology here at Stanford University, where he is also director of the Center for Mind, Brain, Computation, and Technology. And Jay, along with other towering figures like Joff Hinton, Jeffrey Hinton, who's been in the news a lot lately due to his severing of ties with Google to promote awareness about the danger of AI is considered one of the the fathers of artificial intelligence. And in this episode, this is what we talk about. So Jay and I discuss some of his main interests in and contributions to the field, including his work on parallel distributed processing with David Rumelhart. The link to their book by the same is in the description. And then the relationship between neural networks in the brain, uh, since cognitive phenomena were and really are at the center or heart of Jay's interest in his work, and just what developments are necessary for artificial intelligence to replicate the thinking of the greatest human scientists and engineers. So I think we, we talk about Darwin a lot, for instance, in this case, and his his goal-directedness. And I'd also hoped that Jay and I might get to some of his current research program, which is all about mathematical cognition, since the foundations of math are one of my main interests. But unfortunately, it's going to have to wait for another time. So comments, likes, subscribes, those are always extremely appreciated. There's a a Discord if you want to weigh in on guests. There's robinsonsfashionempire.com, where you can get podcast merch like the shirt I'm wearing right now. Then there's also Robinson Eats, which is on YouTube and Twitch, where I have a pint of ice cream or something every day. And you are all invited to come chat with me if you'd like to do that. So without any further ado, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Jay. As I'm sure will come out in just a few minutes, I think you have pretty deep interests in computer science and mathematics and maybe even neuroscience as well, now that I think about it. So why was it that you chose a career in psychology to pursue your research interests? Did it did it have anything to do with the states of the fields at the time of your training? Um. I think it had to do with the fact that it was possible for me to do research in 
psychology where I felt like I could ask in my own questions as while I was still an undergraduate. I um, I went to college at Columbia um, and I had this opportunity in math and they said, gee, do you want to go into math or not? And they said, well, not, no, I'm not sure I want to major in math. So they said, well, take this course instead of that one. And so I missed the chance to study math with one of my, turns out to be one of my heroes in, in math. I had been interested, I, I had thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist because I wanted to basically understand myself and how I was like relating to other people and why I would have these complex emotions about women and uh, couldn't ask people out for a date, even though I really was attracted to someone, things like that. So I actually was going to be a psychiatrist uh, when I was a freshman. So I had to take physics um, and uh, math. And, but I was also somebody who learned a lot from literature. So I uh, taken a lot of literature in the high school and I placed out a freshman English and I got a chance to study James Joyce as a freshman too, in a special freshman English class. Um, so, you know, my education was pretty eclectic. Uh, and then when I was a sophomore, there was this big revolution at Columbia. And um, everybody was taking sides and had very strong views about things. And I, one of the things that I noticed was that there were many people around me who were completely convinced that they knew the answer to all the questions that were being asked. And then there were people like myself who, you know, had a lot of concerns about what our government was doing in Southeast Asia and whether Columbia should be building a gym and uh, part of Harlem right next to the campus or not. But we weren't absolutely sure that these guys were all part of the evil empire in quite the same way as some other people. I decided I wanted to understand more about the personality differences between these two different types of people. So I, the university basically shut itself down and we got a chance to do projects instead of taking exams for the rest of our, to finish our courses if we wanted a letter grade. So I developed a personality inventory to assess what kinds of people would occupy buildings um, and which kinds would be more likely to um, you know, sit on the steps of those buildings because they weren't sure the police should come in and remove those people, but they weren't also sure that they should be inside the buildings themselves. Those were my two groups of subjects. And I, I found that the people who occupied buildings were uh, definitely had sort of authoritarian style personalities, uh, a bit sort of like, I guess, Lenin-like to me. Uh, and, uh, so that all fit together, but it launched me into the idea that I could do research in psychology as a sophomore. And I, but as a junior, I did started doing my own experiments. It's way more exciting than physics and chemistry because at that time, all the physics and chemistry I could do was just canned exercises, you know, that, that were programmed for people to do in their quote-unquote lab. So that's what got me into psychology. I think. 
No, that that all makes a lot of sense. We had a, a very similar background in, in some ways. I also loved literature and loved studying James Joyce in undergrad as well, then the math and the physics, the whole eclectic education business. But I think it would, would be best then if we started at the broadest level and then moved into some more specific dimensions of your work. And you remain extremely well known for a two-volume book you and David Rumohart published in 1986 called Parallel Distributed Processing. And what is the general idea of parallel distributed processing as it's employed to explain cognitive function? So I think the idea came originally from an interest in understanding how when we perceive, when we think, when we understand language, when we just decide how to reach with our arm to pick up an object that's sitting on the table in front of us, um, we're always integrating multiple sources of information and um, although others, you know, liked to argue that some of these sources of information were primary and categorical, it always seemed to me and David that um, they were all sort of graded constraints and that, you know, you could override any of them with other ones if they were strong enough. There was no in-principle reason why syntax had to be first, something like that. And um, so we sought to build models where the interpretation of any element of sensory input could be understood as exploiting all of the potential um, constraints that other aspects of the input could impose, uh, as well as what you had learned about those constraints from your prior experience. And um, we studied this in particular initially in the context of um, perceiving letters embedded in other letters. So if you um, present someone with a sequence of letters extremely briefly on the screen and you ask them, to identify one of the letters, you point to the position that one of the letters occupied and you say, what letter was that one? And even you give them a forced choice between two alternatives that you've chosen carefully in advance, they will be better at identifying that letter if it's in a word than if it's by itself. And uh, this fact, uh, you know, is contra to a lot of different ways of thinking. It's like, well, wouldn't you have to identify the letters before you figured out what word it is? So why is it that the word, the fact that it's in a word could help you identify the letter? Um, so that's like why people found it interesting. And I actually started exploring that phenomenon myself in graduate school. Um, But, you know, from the point of view of uh, continuous integration of partial evidence and um, 
synergistic combination of information from what you know about how letters get together to make a word together with um, what the sensory evidence is that ha you have at your disposal, we were actually able to build a very simple model that captured this. Um, the model has neuron-like processing units in it for features of letters in each of the possible positions within a word and then units for uh, letters that might be in each of those positions and then units for words that span across multiple positions. And so when you see, um, for example, W-O-R, and you know there's one more letter, but you're not quite sure what it is, you know, a couple of words get activated in your mind. The word word itself and the word work are consistent with those first three letters. And if the bottom-up input is maybe um, consistent with a K or an R, but not with a D, your the network will sort of settle into a state where it's decided that this must be work and that final letter must be a K. And uh, we, with, with this little model, we were able to account for a wide range of data from experiments on you know, the perception of letters and words. Um, and we, we also discovered that we could account for the perception of letters in pronounceable non-words this way as well. So people see a letter in a pronounceable non-word better than they see it when it's by itself. And there wouldn't be a pre-existing unit for that pronounceable non-word. So um, uh, how could that work? Well, in our model, it worked very simply because it might partially activate a bunch of similar words that all sort of agreed about what that letter might be. So if you print it, if you present um, a letter string like M-A-V-E, um, it doesn't match any particular word, but it matches a lot of words that have M-A-blank-E and another bunch of words that have A-V-E, and they all sort of agree that that A and, and that E are extremely likely letters, and the M is actually reasonably likely with other letters in the V slot, and V is reasonably likely with other letters in the M slot. And so this conspiracy of partially activated uh, units for familiar words sort of works together to support all the letters. Just to clarify then the hypothesis that accounts for why it's easier to identify a letter when it appears in a word rather than when it is by itself is that the recognition that it's a certain letter is reinforced by units in the neural network that are already sensitized, so to speak, to words that contain that letter, or in the second example, to phonetic units that contain that letter? Um, well, I think, let me try to um, discuss this in a slightly different way. So, uh, well, let's imagine a situation where um, the information that you had from the visual input was incomplete, like maybe some features were obscured by blotches and you couldn't see all the letters properly. So um, in 
principle, you know, for each of the letters in the word, there would be a set of possibilities that would all be consistent with the input. And um, if you had a, a neuron for each of the possible letters at each of the possible positions in the word, this bottom-up input might activate, you know, let's say it could be an M or an N in the first position. So those are both partially activated and an E or an F in the second position uh, and or a D or a B in the last position. But, um, and so all those possibilities would be activated bottom up. But if the letters were all like competing with each other and they will, each of them is, you know, in each position, there's a couple that are equally consistent with the input. Um, you just have to sort of guess among them. But if there was a another unit up above them for the word, I don't know, um, Ned, somebody's name, then um, the N and the E and the D would all be activating that. But there might not be a unit for you know, MFB um, or other combinations there. So when there's a familiar pattern across all the letters, the unit for that pattern can be activated even though you're uncertain about the identity of the letters in each of the positions. And then if that unit sends feedback to all of the letters that are in it saying, you know, when I'm active, you should be active. Um, the system will be able to settle into this sort of mutually consistent state where the word Ned and the letters N, E, and D are all mutually activated. And um, that's your interpretation of this input. Um, so furthermore, if I then sort of put a masking field in. So I'm wiping out the actual bottom-up feature information that was supporting this. Because these things are mutually supporting each other, they will sort of hang before the mind, if you don't mind the expression, in a for a longer. And you'll sort of have this, they'll persist. And you'll be able to sort of like feel like you saw it better, for example, and also report the identities of the letters in it because they're still sort of hanging there in front of your in front of your uh, mind's eye if you like so so that's exactly how I thought about this model and um, in the case of uh, the non-word example it's not because it's a phonologically familiar pattern but it's in our model it's because it partially consistent with several words, each of which get partially activated, and then they feedback support for all the letters that are actually there, even though no one of the words by itself exactly matches the whole input. So that's a an interesting kind of situation where the the configuration of a as a whole has a sort of a quality of familiarity, even though it it's only partially similar to many things that are familiar. And and that, I used to call that conspiracy of mental agents, you know, to capture the idea that all these little 
bits of knowledge that we have about several different words could sort of like work together to make something that isn't a perfect match to any of them nevertheless seem like a you know a member of the set of possible things that might occur or certainly more likely than a string of random uh random letters that uh so in order to make truly random sequences you have to work very hard we we embedded letters in Q's, X's, and J's to make sure that, you know, any other letter that was embedded with a Q and X and a J didn't make a meaningful uh, combination at all. Uh, and that really made it possible to see a huge advantage for pronounceable non-words or even unpronounceable ones that happen to partly match um, several different subsets of the letters in the word. One of my favorite examples was S-L-N-T, which has no vowels in it, so it couldn't actually be word, but slit and slat and slot are all words and scent and so on are words. And so um, it resonates with lots of words and still uh, produces this facilitation effect relative to, let's say, an E embedded in a Q and X and a J. And... I know that these are these are some very basic questions from you for you, but why is this parallel distributed processing model thought of or called a, a connectionist model? Um, well, it's because the knowledge in the network is actually in the connections between the neurons and not sort of written down anywhere. Um, as a string of like the, the unit for the word word is a unit for that word only in virtue of the fact that it connects to the letters W, O, R, and D. And um, its consequences for being able to uh, support perception of those letters are captured by the fact that it has connections back to those letters so that when it's activated, it activates the units for those letters. And so um, the entire basis for um, the word superiority effect that we've been talking about is the fact that there are units that have the, there's units for each of the words, but they're units for those words by virtue of the fact that they connect to the right letters. And so the knowledge is all in the connections. And the idea is that even though something like this can be instantiated in silicon, the idea is that it's a much more simplified model for how the human brain works and how you think of cognitive function in humans. Yeah. So um, we think of these units in our network as corresponding to um, it's a slightly abstract mapping. It's not like individual neurons or even separate populations of neurons, but patterns of activation across populations of neurons that are mutually exclusive alternative patterns of activation. And um, these patterns are, you know, compete with each other. Uh, in the same way that individual units can uh, 
compete with each other through lateral inhibition and so on. And so it's possible to imagine, you know, an actual neurophysiological instantiation of these models. Although I've always felt myself that my own greatest interest was in making sure I'm making contact with the cognitive phenomena that I care about and not worrying so much about the neurophysiological implementation as such. But the key idea, what a really important idea is the bidirectionality and mutuality of these connections such that you know, activity anywhere can potentially be uh, part of the context that determines the outcome of activity anywhere else in the network. Well, you said uh, just a few seconds ago that your greatest interest was always in the cognitive phenomena, or that's what you wanted to keep in mind. Can we talk about some of them and how they are instantiated, to use that word again, in a neural network of this sort. So maybe we could talk about learning. I mean, that's a very important cognitive phenomenon. Yeah. Um, so when we first built our model of perception of letters and words, we wired it up by hand. But of course, you know, we know that every language in the world is different and people from different cultures have different, different, uh, words in their mind and even different letters, different script systems for writing them down. And um, so it immediately became something we wanted to think about to, to understand how, um, you know, the set of connections that allowed a certain process to occur might get established through some sort of experience dependent process. And um, I think actually both Rawlhart and I started out trying to ask the question, well, how could, you know, populations of neurons sort of like be exposed to patterns like words and then, you know, a word, a, a unit for an individual word would sort of pop out uh, and get down to that word and then um, that would become this model essentially where there'd be the same individual neurons for each each kind of cognizable unit, each, each letter and each word as the things that we cognize as um, when we talk to each other about these things or, or when we teach each other about the spellings of words, for example. Um, but uh, it, it sort of rapidly became apparent that the networks weren't cooperating with us in this way. They wouldn't, they would learn, but they wouldn't assign a single neuron to every distinct pattern in the way that we wanted. And, and uh, we started realizing that it might be useful to like let go of this idea that there had to be a neuron for everything that we cognize and instead start thinking about the entire pattern of activation as 
corresponding to a cognizable entity like a like a, a phoneme or a word or a letter or something like that. And um, so we then started exploring, well, okay, so how could you how could you actually teach a neural network to um, complete a pattern like a word, you know, without having individual neuron like units for each whole word? And so um, very early on, we started exploring models in which uh, you would just say, well, this, for example, you could imagine there's still four slots and each of those slots would have a sub-pattern for a letter in it. And then all the neurons in each of the slots would be connected to all of the other neurons. And the word would be some sort of stable pattern that you could settle to by virtue of the connections directly among these neurons in this pattern that represents the words. There was a model like that that attempted to explain uh, all of the data in the interactive activation model. Um, it turns out that there are profound limits to that idea as well. And so as soon as you start exploring that, it becomes clear that um, it doesn't completely work. It doesn't allow all the possible combinations of things that might occur in the input to correctly sort themselves out. And uh, it then starts to appear that you actually need uh, a layer of neurons that sort of somehow represents the combinations of elements in the input to pick up on those combinations and then feedback support for kind of um, repeated subpatterns over those combinations. And building an algorithm that captures that turned out to be much harder. And um, it hadn't really, that problem hadn't been solved in when we were uh, first working on learning within these models. And so we, um, we did various sort of hacks to make models that would allow us to begin to capture some of the potential we thought learning could have um, uh, without actually solving that problem. Is the motivation behind this sort of trial and error back and forth of model testing and algorithm development just to find something that works or something that very accurately replicates what you hypothesize to be going on in the human brain when it, when it encounters these sorts of problems or tasks? Well, when we started with the interactive activation model, I was a very... Um, I would say clear-minded, empirically-oriented scientist who felt that accounting for all aspects of the data was extremely important. And people have often told me that it was that commitment that was exhibited by our paper on the interactive activation model that made the paper, that helped to make the paper popular with um, other experimental psychologists who, 
or people who, like me, had been experimentalists before uh, I got the bug and started building these models. Um, but Rommelhart was never like that. Rommelhart always wanted to illustrate the alternative way of solving the problem uh, and didn't so much care about exactly nailing all the details of the phenomenon. Um, as long as he sort of had introduced an elegant uh, alternative perspective on how to think about an issue. And um, for him, the interactive activation model was a way of breaking out of the mold of good old-fashioned AI where you um, you know, you stipulate that there are these various structures and, you know, you have to, I don't know, you decide which one it is that fits the current context and you impose that one on it. He was always looking for ways of gradedly combining. So he was interested in the concept of a schema, for example, and he, he wanted to understand um, you know, how a schema would constrain our interpretation of an event. But whenever he tried to build a model that had schemas in it, it would have to select one schema or the other. And he wanted to understand, you know, like, well, how could you have a birthday party in a restaurant? You'd have to choose between the birthday party schema or the restaurant schema. He wanted them to work together cooperatively as opposed to being things you had to choose between. Um, and uh, so he wanted a way of illustrating how multiple sort of little schema-like things could sort of collaborate with each other and sort of jointly explain some novel event that wasn't one that you'd ever seen before. And I think that's why the pseudo-word effect that I was talking about before where you have a, a string of letters that you've never seen before, um, but it's sort of partially similar to many other strings that you have seen before, appealed to him so much. And, you know, I was like, well, we, we there was a period of time when the model wasn't capturing that as well as it, we wanted it to. And uh, I was saying, well, isn't it time to write up our paper and save the question about the pseudo words for later? And he said, no. We're going to solve this problem now. And, you know, he kept working on it. And we figured out that there was a, a range of parameter values that would allow our model to capture this feature um, without building in special provisions for pronounceable nonwords, right? By having it just emerge from the way the word units work together. Um, and I think uh, that was profoundly satisfying to him. And uh, ultimately, to me as well. Um, and so uh, that led to a situation where we got into um, a kind of a situation where we produced a model before we had solved the harder problems of learning I was alluding to before. 
that pointed towards the possibility that these kinds of ideas might capture aspects of language, um, but did so in a way that was open to criticism and so allowed people who uh, thought that it had to be kind of the good old-fashioned AI kind of way to feel like they had cause to complain. Yeah, I saw that you had a um, debate with Steven Pinker, who was just on on the show recently. Yeah. So Steve wrote a book called Words and Rules about this debate, um, uh, in which he was very um, complimentary to our model uh, in about three quarters of the sentences that he wrote. But then... And here's why it's wrong. It could never be true that anything like this could possibly work. And um, uh, there was actually a book that was edited by Steve and uh, another guy named Alan Prince um, that had three papers in it, one of them by Pinker and Prince, one of them by uh, a man named uh, Tom Bever and uh, Joel Lactor, and then a third one by... Fodor and Politian that, you know, I think together sort of placed in front of the community a set of arguments about why parallel distributed processing was never going to solve the problems of intelligence. That was at least Fodor's argument. Picker's argument was a bit more restricted to particular um, phenomenon of language that we were interested in. Hmm. Okay. Well, now I have a, a number of questions. We've, we've gone off in a bunch of different directions, but okay. So I wanted to get back to Rummelhart, but I'm also curious what uh, Fodor and Pulishin's argument was for the parallel distributed processing model, never being able to, capture human intelligence. One one thing that comes to mind just immediately that maybe we could talk about separately if this isn't the answer is that I imagine that one cognitive phenomenon that is extremely difficult to model, at least in the neural networks that we, certainly what we had access to at that time is affective reasoning or emotionally laden reasoning. But maybe that's not what they that wasn't had in what Fodor was interested in. <laughs> right. Okay. I think he had a lot of affect about what he was interested in. Yeah. 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 Fodor's uh, argument yeah. was that um, uh, we can understand sentences that we've never heard before, and we can process logical arguments that we've never been given before as two examples of our ability to um, deal with uh, structured expressions that uh, obey certain rules. And when the patterns uh, are consistent with these rules, you can apply the rules to them in such a way as to derive results without regard to having ever seen these particular 
uh, entities together before. And the argument was that um, models like our PDP models uh, of that era would not be able to um, capture these systematic rules. And I, I, I cannot advocate that he was right in making that claim. I can only say that he made it with a great deal of conviction. Um, and he certainly uh, helped to articulate an issue that many people have uh, continue to uh, focus on, um, namely the ability of these systems to uh, deal with items that are completely novel. So Chomsky is famous for introducing maybe the most uh, celebrated example of item of an item that's supposed to be completely novel and even meaningless, but which in some sense you can recognize as a possible sentence. And this is sort of the heart of the argument, right? So um, Chomsky argued in his rebuttal of Skinner's um, uh, work in the 50s on uh, the idea that uh, learning could help a system discover uh, uh, how to use language. Uh, he's, he said, well, look, it, here's a sentence that you've never heard before, but you can tell me whether it's grammatical or not. And the example was, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. Well, why is it grammatical? It's got the sequence of adjectives followed by a noun, making a noun phrase, colorless green ideas, followed by a verb and an adverb. A noun phrase followed by a verb phrase. Sleep furiously is the verb phrase. Uh, even if sleep doesn't occur furiously and ideas can't be green or and green things can't be colorless, so those words never occurred before together, uh, nevertheless, it's got the right sequence of abstract types that obey a pattern of a noun phrase followed by a verb phrase and a noun phrase made of adjectives followed by a noun and a verb phrase made of a verb plus an adverb. I could write a rule for that and any, any pattern that obeyed that rule, whether familiar or not, would be something I could recognize as grammatical. And Fodor's argument was that a neural network would never be able to exhibit that ability. And whenever I tried to understand why he thought it wouldn't, I only kept running into insistences that it wouldn't, but, um, uh, you know, so I never really understood anything except that he didn't believe that it would. Um, but it has been a challenge because uh, neural networks do tend to overfit to their training data. And it is a fact that... Um, they tend to be, they still today, even our biggest language models and most proficient systems tend to be a little bit too sensitive to the particulars of their experience, at least for many people's tastes. 
No, this is all really interesting. And I think we'll get back to some of these questions in a few minutes when we get to capturing advanced cognitive abilities with deep neural networks. But I had one last question about Rummelhart. And I'm wondering, so it sounded based on what you were saying earlier, like his attitude toward these projects was more experimental in the interest of solving problems like he was willing to be experimental to solve problems rather than remain constrained either by uh, the current AI paradigms, which you mentioned on the one hand or on the other in trying to replicate human cognition explicitly. Does that sound accurate? Um, I would just temper that by saying that um, there were aspects of cognition that he insisted were not being captured and he didn't care as much about capturing the ones that were easy to capture as capturing the ones that weren't being captured. So he would give up on certain things in order to produce a model that would capture something that wasn't being captured by other models. Whereas I would be like, well, we can't, if we can't publish until we've counted for everything, right? You know, <laughs> And 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 that uh, our our paper on the on the past tense of English words, which is the one that was subject to the critique by Pinker and Prince, um, had profound limitations in how well it worked. Um, but it captured things that uh, other models couldn't capture. And Rummelhart was very pleased with that. And so he was happy to put the paper out with under those circumstances was showing, look, we're beginning to capture these things that these fully systematic type models that Fodor would like wouldn't be able to capture. Even if we can't capture the things that Fodor is insisting on as being the first things that we would have to capture. And that was the essence, I think, of the debate and not are you capturing some aspect of cognition or it's just which ones you cared about. Like the ability to exploit context effectively is perhaps for Rummelhart, uh, at least in a paper that he wrote in 1977, you know, something that was essential to... Um, you know, language understanding or reading or some natural process whereby we integrate multiple sources of information and come up with a synthetic understanding of something. Hmm. And just as an aside, is this sort of work something that could just as easily be undertaken today in a computer science or a linguistics department as a psychology department? Or is there something very specific about it that gave it to, gave it its home in psychology well um i think the answer to that question is it's always been an interdisciplinary activity um i myself was definitely you know as a graduate student in a a relatively restricted psychology department box. <laughs> you know, as an undergraduate, I took a lot of literature classes, like we said, and um, was very interested in sociology, literature, 
uh, as well as psychology um, and some math as well. But I went to graduate school, somehow I was zeroed in on accounting for my you know, perception of letters and words and non-words and stuff like that, and really was a psychologist in that classic sense. But Rommel Hart was not. He was trained as a, so his bachelor's degree was in mathematics. He got a PhD in mathematical psychology from Stanford. And when he went to UCSD, he and Don Norman uh, began to engage with AI. And so Rommel Hart actually built a um, a AI, uh, a Lisp style AI uh, language of his own. He invented an extension of a of Lisp, which was at that time the language of AI, thought to be the language of thought by many people, and um, you know wrote the compiler for it. Um, and started trying to capture human intelligence in this model using the kinds of things that people had argued, you know, you needed to have. They needed to be sort of really structured and systematic. I don't know if you know Lisp, but it's extremely structured programming language. Um, there were things called Lisp machines, which were going to be the you know, the machines that would replace all other architectures because Lisp was the language of thought. Uh, but he hit the wall with it. He, he couldn't get it to, uh, like, deal with the birthday party in the restaurant scenario. Um, and he started writing these papers saying, listen, we need an alternative to this approach. And uh, I was already sort of exploring my own way of thinking about these alternatives. So it was, it was extremely copacetic uh, for us to start to collaborate together. But if I was bringing a little bit of neuroscience background from my PhD, which, uh, and from even from before my PhD, which gave me, you know, oh, look, this a neural network, this could be an actual neural network in your brain. And I, it, it helped me think about the problem to think about it that way. So I, I feel like um, what we in the parallel distributed processing books that you referred to earlier were really the result of collaboration between me and David and Jeff Hinton, who was a, trained as a computer scientist, and um, contributions from some mathematicians and some neurobiologists, including Terry Sanofsky. Uh, who was first a physicist and then a, a neuro a neuroscientist um, secondarily after his training in physics um, and uh, the the books were successful because they weren't any one field at all they were at the interface of all these disciplines. Hmm. I was just going to ask, did you work much with Patricia Churchland then? I knew her a little bit. Uh, they arrived sort of as I was transitioning away from UCSD, so I didn't really work with her too much. I remember her husband, who was um, described himself as an eliminative connectionist. That meant that he thought that symbols really had to go and that you wouldn't need them at all. You could, you know, he was completely anti-Fodor, 
like just do it with connections and forget about all of those rules. Uh, so he was the firebrand of that particular philosophy for a while. Uh, Pat was always much more, I don't know, cautious, you know, friendly and cheerful and never confrontational, but arguing that we should pay attention to the brain. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard of eliminative connectionism before, but I know that they're very well known in the philosophical world for eliminative materialism. Is it, well, maybe it, I'm extending it myself, but uh, I thought it, you know, it, there was a period of time when we should look it up and see whether the paper's on eliminative connectionism by, uh, by Paul. Yeah. Um, but returning to the issue that I raised earlier, just as maybe our last exemplar of a cognitive phenomenon that might have been interesting to you while working on this model is affective reasoning is did you or have you done any work on modeling that in a neural network um i have in collaboration with the um, person who has a phd uh it, from our department here at stanford um from the affective group in the department uh and um the particular focus of the work was value-based decision-making uh, in the sense of, like, it's not a matter of there's a right or a wrong answer. You're just choosing, you know, what are you going to have for dinner? Or um, are you going to eat a salad or a, um, you know, a bacon cheeseburger for lunch? Um, and... Uh, The, the issues uh, that we addressed in this paper were actually ones that are very similar to the issues that Rommelhart and I had addressed in the interactive activation model of letter perception that I was describing before in the sense that uh, it was Rav's view that Whenever we make any of these decisions, there's actually um, all kinds of factors that influence them, that make it so that it really isn't a matter of making a choice that's consistent with your value estimation. It's actually a combination of influences that happen to be operating in the context in the immediate context of your choice process and in your personal history and so on that kind of conspire together to make it so that you make this choice and not that one in ways that, you know, can completely undermine any sense that it's, uh, you know, veridically, um, the choice that you made is is veridically uh, sort of aligned with your any sense of true underlying value, or even that you have such a thing as a true underlying value. I think uh, you know the notion that there is some value that I assign to each of several different alternatives 
and it's on the basis of maximizing my kind of satisfaction of my value considerations that I choose. Um, is highly problematic. And uh, there's many, many uh, studies that have been published by people like Rob and others that uh, support that view. And so I was um, pleased to be able to collaborate with him in um, trying to capture some of these phenomena. In your article that I mentioned earlier, but earlier, but again, the, the title was Capturing Advanced human cognitive abilities with deep neural networks. You begin with the question, how can artificial neural networks capture the advanced cognitive abilities of pioneering scientists? And first off, I guess this sort of reflects some earlier questions that I've asked you, but I'm wondering whether you personally are interested in this more as a technical design problem or whether your curiosity stems from a more practical interest, such as the advancement of civilization, maybe by having AI on the cutting edge of research, or as you said earlier, because of your interest in the cognitive phenomena in humans that are at stake. Well, I think that's a great question. Um, I feel like... Um, First of all, it is true that my own fundamental interest is in understanding human capabilities and how um, to understand how we've been able to achieve the things that we have as a species uh, or even how individuals have been able to achieve the things that they have as as individual scientists. And, you know, Rommelhart is one of the people who I think about because I knew him very well. Um, but I also think about Newton, um, Einstein, Darwin uh, uh, as well. Um, many things are written about all of those three people. And so you could spend a lot of time reading about uh, how people have thought about how they think, um, they thought, I should say. Um, and uh, also, though, I um, reflect on um, the deep learning systems that, you know, were beginning to come out toward the end of last year, like ChatGPT in its initial incarnation that came out in November um, and other things that had come out before that. So I was actually writing that paper in the run-up to the release of ChatGPT, of GPT-3. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if GPT-4 made an even bigger splash for me because it was stronger than the predecessors in ways that began to make me feel like, you know, um, maybe, well, for me, the biggest splash was GPT-4. But I wrote this paper in like, I, had, I guess I wrapped it up 
right when GPT-3 came out in in November, which was, I guess, the biggest splash uh, for OpenAI. Anyway, um, those models seem to be interesting in that they exhibit um, capabilities that you know, have led these AI companies to fall all over each other and thinking that they've actually just about solved the problem of intelligence. Um, you know, and and uh, on the one hand, but leave one feeling a little bit less. I leave me anyway, feeling a little bit like mm, something's missing here to me. Um, and I want to think more about what it is. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the answer that I think of when I think about these, this question is sort of feeds back into the way I posed the question in a way. But the answer is I feel like um, what's missing is this incredible sense of purpose and goal-directedness that... Um, People like Darwin and Newton and and Rummelhart <laughs> in a couple of instances uh, clearly exhibited. So it, on Newton's tombstone, it apparently says, by dint of the power of unprecedented power of concentration or thought or something along those lines. I can't remember exactly the quote. He did all of the following things. This man focused his mind with an intensity that nobody else could kind of fathom. Right? And to use concentration as a word to apply to something like ChatGPT just seems like a category error. Um, I guess, yeah, you, well, it's interesting to think, to, to think so and maybe to chat about what you think that means. Um, I, uh, I, I guess what I mean is having a sense of purpose that you're working, um, you know, toward that you come back to day after day and you sort of like, you know, systematically organize your behavior towards finding pathways towards the solution. And maybe you go down a dead end for six months or something like that. You know, I don't know, but there's there's a sense of like focus and um, direction towards a goal, and I feel like you know, even very young children can be extremely goal directed. They um, two year olds are extremely difficult to control. They get in their minds goals and and like they certain kinds of things that they want to do and they just insist on pursuing them and you have, you know, they, they become somewhat uncontrollable because their, their self-directedness kind of takes over. And it's only through a lot of acculturation and um, further, you know, development that they begin to be able to sort of 
channel those goals into ways that sort of work together constructively with those of other people. Um, so I think of humans as uh, intrinsically goal-directed, and one of the things that I myself have been thinking about recently is how to go from relatively primitive goals like seeking nourishment when we're hungry or warmth when we're freezing um, to um, you know more advanced goals that uh, are defined in terms of like discovering basic scientific principles or um, achieving equity for all the people who live in a subcontinent like India, for example. Uh, and, uh, you know, these goals are probably not intrinsic as such, but somehow that goal-directedness that might be intrinsic can get structured towards creating a kind of pro-social agency or, in other cases, quite destructive kinds of agency, at least from the perspective of those who are not part of your particular gang of thugs. Um, but in any case, this goal-directedness is very central to who we are. And I'm not sure, as I think about it, uh, to what extent um, it's a good idea to build too much of that into artificial systems. We want them to be tools for um, our agreed-upon social goals, not self-directed agents. So I think there's issues there that need to be considered carefully. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but I think for me it's more about understanding uh, the differences and where the issues are that need to be carefully considered uh, that I raise these issues. Mm -hmm. Just to go back to what I said at the outset of your response, what I meant by concentration is, I, I guess, attention to a single task and not the sort of larger structured concentration that you've just been indicating, uh, maybe like a sort of doggedness but because when you ask chat gpt a question it just answers it so I, I think it pays attention to that question but of course it's lacking the sophistication to formulate a, a multi-pronged strategy of the sort that you're indicating and i also totally understand and empathize with your hesitation to endow too much of this ability in uh, an artificially intelligent uh, organization yeah. Well, yeah, the the ChatGPT certainly as of no end of November uh 22 um basically was a autoregressive generator of text strings that 
could sometimes produce um, apparently coherent stuff, but uh, ultimately uh, had several shortcomings. But even then, they had begun to fine-tune it with um, instruction uh, to follow instructions and uh, it that begins to move it more towards a purposive kinds of approach. But even then you could say, well, it's just part of the context string. It's not really a true purpose. Uh, and whether that's true or not, and what it would mean for it to be a true purpose beyond being part of the context, you know, is an open question. And um, a lot of work is being done at Google and OpenAI with various ways of thinking about how best to structure prompts and how best to, um, you know, organize fine-tuning activities around encouraging the model towards the idea that it should think carefully through a problem and decompose it into a hierarchical set of sub-problems uh, in, in a way that begins to seem much more um, purposive, goal-directed, and um, controlled by an overall plan or goal. And um, so I, I, that is definitely where a lot of work is currently being focused and where I feel like uh, we're going to be learning quite a lot in the next couple rounds of releases of uh, AI systems about how systematic and uh, um, organized and coherent they can become uh, around working towards solving specific tasks. So the, I think the jury is, well, the future is going to hold a lot of uh, new developments and I have, I think it'll be interesting to see what they turn out to be. Mm -hmm. Are there any other dimensions beyond this goal-directed purposive thinking that we've been discussing that you think define a scientist like Darwin and distinguish his capacities from that of our most sophisticated neural networks? Or is that the primary one? Um, yeah, I do. Um, I think it's in the includes the intent to formulate um, abstract principles that uh, sort of serve as foundational um, touch points for, you know, understanding I don't know, a great deal of the structure of the universe. So uh, the principle of natural selection is an example. 
um, the um, expression F equals MA or uh, E equals MC squared. They're examples of this. These, these expressions capture foundational relationships um, that, uh, you know, characterize, you know, the structure of space-time or the organization of uh, multi-body systems in a Newtonian mechanical system. And um, th this... This seeks this uh, effort to seek these explanatory principles is, I think, what makes it science as opposed to, um, you know, like Genghis Khan deciding he's going to conquer the world or something. Hmm. So it's the the intent to discover these axioms. I'll just use axioms broadly, rather than maybe the ability to do so. <laughs> Intent and ability are, are, are intertwined in a complex way. I think uh, we, we um, I guess, I, I, there have been too many times when I've had an intent that my abilities failed to live up to. So I think, uh, you know, it, it, there, there, there come these moments, right, in history where, the opportunity for a certain kind of insight arises. And I certainly think that was clear with Darwin. I mean, Wallace had the same idea, basically. And Newton, a lot of his ideas, I mean, you know, Leibniz wasn't so much of a physicist, but a lot of the ideas, insights into calculus and so on were kind of co-discovered by him and Leibniz at roughly the same time. And, um, you know, many people discovered backprop independently as well. And um, that was something Rummelhart set out to do, uh, and he did do it himself without the benefit of reading anybody else's papers about it, but he was only one of several people. So the moment where that problem exists and hasn't yet been solved is crucial, but the combination of like the preparedness of mind together with the, the kind of partial realization that somehow this is within the zone of something you might potentially be able to achieve, you know, those things all come together to make it so that these things end up happening. Yeah. Very interesting. What is the, the current state of neural networks with regard to their capacity to have like such an, an intent to search for these explanatory principles. And I guess I, I wonder how one would go about endowing a neural network with this sort of capacity. Um, so I do think that that is an interesting question. I, um, uh, it, it comes to the question about mathematical cognition, I think, at some level, because I think of mathematics as essentially a search for 
you know, a set of principles from which lots of things uh, follow, like the principles of Euclidean geometry being one example. Um, and um, it's the, I think, you know, I, for both Newton and Leibniz, I, I feel like they were coming along at a time when mathematics was, I, I don't know enough about the details of mathematics at that time to know exactly what all the relevant precursors were that were in place, but um, certainly Euclid and the systematization of geometry was a well-established body of uh, mathematical theory and um, I'm guessing that there were several, like Descartes had probably done a lot to help set the stage in ways that I don't fully understand. But um, the, the hypothesis at least would be that there were examples of the power of such systems for providing insight that created a situation where it was possible to envision that there might be additional ones beyond those that could be discovered. Certainly when it comes to Einstein, he's got a lot of predecessors to build on and, and even sort of examples of many related um, sort of systems that people had developed in Riemann's um, geometries and so on were uh, extremely influential in giving him the tools he needed to take the steps that he took. So uh, it's it, for Einstein, it seems easy to say um, there was an established paradigm of developing such kind of systems and he was building on top of it um, and you know how much we should credit Newton and Leibniz with actually sort of laying the foundations as opposed to building on things that others had already established but I take Newton's statement that um, he's only seen as far as he did by standing on the shoulders of giants to be a statement about his own recognition that he was building on the ideas of other people himself. So I think these things generally have that character of sort of emerging from a set of resources that are laying about that you could take a next step on top of together with, um, you know, the available of availability of the technical tools to make measurements that make it possible to even conceive of the quantities that you're thinking about uh, and so on. Um, well, <clears throat> returning uh, to this overarching uh, goal-focused thinking that is the maybe the primary feature that defines a, a, a Darwin's thinking for us, I'm wondering what the importance is of the macro structure of the neural network, though maybe we should first distinguish between what comprises its micro and macro structure, because in your paper, you 
write about the significance of something called a transformer uh, for this problem? Um, okay, so the level of microstructure, uh, a neural network consists of a large collection of uh, simple uh, processing units that do things like compute weighted sums of their inputs from other processing units and then subject those weighted sums to some um, nonlinear um, transformation that's fairly simple to describe. Mathematically, um, so maybe that's the microstructure of a neural network. Um, the macrostructure of the neural network is a little bit more about how you organize those elementary computations and uh, the transformer um, architecture was one that, I guess, really brings home how a fairly subtle change in the way you organize the computation can dramatically increase its um, effectiveness. Um, so we probably don't want to go into the technical details of exactly how a transformer works, but I guess the key to it, as I see it, is that it makes it possible to, uh, to have a pattern of activation at a, you know, over a set of one set of, let's say, I don't know, 128, or maybe it's 10,024 um, neuron-like processing units to be used to kind of like search through an entire indefinitely large history of previous uh, states rather than being restricted to some condensed representation that's been distilled out of all those previous states into another vector of approximately the same scale. Right, so uh, an LSTM-based neural network has got a state and you've got some current input state, which is some length, and but you've just got those two equally long state vectors, one of which compresses history and the other is a current state. Um, and you've only got that compression of your history, but the transformer has access to all of the history, which remains available for querying uh, without this condensation process. And it seems to me that that is the heart of the distinction between um, large language models that have become successful since that architecture was introduced um, and the ones that existed beforehand that were promising and interesting but limited. 
certainly in hindsight. Um, and, um, you know, I sort of think, well, gee, that was an architectural breakthrough that we didn't know was coming. Um, its importance gradually became clear over maybe a six-year period. Uh, and today, it feels like we're kind of in a world where that's how everybody thinks. You know, that's that's our world. We, we have transformers now. And I feel like it's extremely unlikely that there won't be another breakthrough <laughs> that will be equally transformative and will, you know, potentially teach us something about how our own minds work. Because it, if it's another sort of subtle change in the architecture, uh, as simple in some ways as the transformer uh, is, uh, it, yeah, it'll be, it would therefore be something that might well be implemented in brains, right? Um, so, so I feel like what the transformer based revolution in language models teaches me is that we don't yet know what um, the potentialities of something with the microstructure of a neural network will turn out to be from an architectural point of view. Does, it sounds to me like the transformer in some ways replicates some, for lack of a better term, um, central governing or memory-like feature of the human brain. Is that at all accurate? Because it does seem to add a, a dimension of memory. So a mathematician, for instance, doesn't have to perform an entire proof every time he uses a result once he has proved the theorem once. It seems like the transformer plays an analogous role. I think the term you used was uh, condensation. Um, well, I think I'd like to suggest a slightly different take on that idea. I, um, one thing the transformer does provide is, um, a powerful like way of thinking about um how we represent and use knowledge compared to the neural network the connectionist idea that we talked about before and I guess I'd like to um, offer this as my way of understanding more about the power of the transformer. Um, so the transformer was initially introduced 
by Faswani et al. They didn't invent it, right? Their title was Attention is All You Need. And it was like, wait, we're going to get rid of those LSTMs and just have this attention mechanism, which had previously been used in a kind of a hybrid architecture. Um, so they weren't inventing it, but they kind of perfected a module that had this transformer um, architecture, and they used it for a particular purpose, which was to allow multiple elements of context to mutually constrain each other um, for the sake of translation. So the, the, the really beautiful little setup of this paper was, um, suppose I have uh, a sentence, he walked to the bank of the river, and I want to translate that into French. Um, wouldn't it be good if I know what kind of bank it was that I was talking about before I started to translate it? And of course, there's two kinds of banks. There's river banks and bench bank, bank branches. Uh, 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 money banks, financial institutions. Um, and so uh, their idea was that when you were processing the word bank, you could query the other words in the sentence to find out which of these interpretations of that word was more likely. So that word river that's toward the end of the sentence can constrain your interpretation of the word bank in the middle of the sentence. Uh, and so by the time you get to trying to translate it, you've kind of resolved all the ambiguities and you know which words in French it is that you're going to want to find because the French word for a riverbank is different from the French word for a financial institution. So um, that they used this transformer-like mechanism to let the word bank query all the other words in the context. And then once they got all the words in the English sentence um, contextualized properly, they then had another section of their transformer that looked back into that and used it to generate uh, the translation into French. So we have an encoder and a decoder, and they're both using this opportunity to query other things to operate. Um, but what that didn't do, and what the huge breakthrough uh, of uh, OpenAI was, was to recognize that you could actually present new information in context to the network and have the network use it to like reason about the answers to questions. Um, so the idea they're titled their paper, um, language models are few shot learners which basically means that I can tell you something 
by just presenting it to you in context. It's not in any connections at all yet. It's stored in activations in those many slots in the past that you're holding on to. And now when it comes time to do something new, you can utilize that information in context together with a query that I give you now to, um, to, to learn something new and, and do something based on what you learned by this, uh, by essentially storing information in context. It's closer to what we mean when we say I learned something. I learned that, um, you know, such and such a person was running for, yeah, that, that, um, Adam Schiff is running for senator in California. I learned that today. Um, that's not knowledge in my weights <laughs> yet. That's something that I just read off the screen and an email while you and I were taking a short break. And um, I can use this to make inferences uh, in ways that, you know, extend my reasoning capability beyond just using the constraints that are already embedded within the connection weights in the neural network. So I think that um, it's that capability that is, uh, you know, leading to uh, all kinds of uh potential to be goal-directed, be uh, context-sensitive, and and um, reason in accordance with principles that you may never have encountered before, but which were explained to you in context, and now you have this new principle and you can use it while you're solving a problem that's subsequently presented to you to which the principle might apply. Um, so... It's not so much, I do believe that your choice of the word condensation has a lot of validity ultimately. I, I, I like the word consolidation at some level because I think that when we first encounter new ideas, they're, um, they're brittle, they're fragile, they, you know, they, they, they get lost from our mental context easily. We, can't use them as effectively as we would like to, and it's only through repeated engagement with them that they become sufficiently integrated to be robust tools for our thought, but um, that the, the context-based representation of knowledge is a intermediary that bridges a gap that, you know, until 2020, was a huge one that um, remained to be filled. And we're beginning to see how to fill it now. Just to clarify for me something that you said earlier, when you're referring to uh, the knowledge in your weights, so to speak, or the storage, for something like ChatGPT that refers to the outcome, so to speak, of its training period on material from the internet, um, so there's a interesting body of work on these issues that's, um, 
still in its infancy at some level, but um, let's take this example. If I say uh, the children went out to, and I ask ChatGPT what it thinks the next word should be, it will say play. Okay. But if I um, make up a new term uh, and I present it to ChatGPT with a definition, like um, a bleefer is a, um, a kind of a bell that's used in Newfoundland in association with lighthouses to uh, warn ships when the fog is so dense that they can't even see the light bulb in the lighthouse. Uh, and then I ask you to use the word bleefer in a sentence. Um, there are no prior connection weights that would allow you to uh, know that bleefers refer to these things that make these sounds, right? I, um, and so you're using this information that I presented to you just once, as opposed to a massive recurrence of sentences like the children went out to play in the training corpus uh, as a basis on which to answer the question, uh, how to use this word in a sentence. And that um, that's an ability that these models acquire because I think um, a lot of times the particular uses that we have to make or the continuations of things that we would expect depend on what's occurred in context already. So, so the network has learned connection weights that allow it to use information in its context in ways that um, make it possible to learn new concepts. At a, but it sits on. It's not directly knowledge about the particular sequence of words, but about how to use information from prior sequences of words to constrain subsequent ones. And I think that um, this kind of capability is a possible precursor to the ability to, uh, or it's a substrate for possibly representing uh, a principle that could then be applied to a particular instance of something uh, to um, reason correctly about it. So let me give you an example. Um, you're familiar with the mod function, um, which uh, is a mathematical function that returns the remainder of dividing one number by another. Okay, so... Uh, 10 mod 7 is 3. Um, now, I could define a new function called the cod function. And uh, the cod function is going to be the function that returns um, the complement 
of the remainder of dividing one number by another. Um, so in the case of um, 10 cod 7, it would be 4 um, because that's the complement that you would require to make back up the divisor. Okay. So now I've defined this function for you. What is 11 cod 8? Oh, that was pretty quick. Let me check your answer. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I think that's correct. So you were able to do this, right? And you never, presumably, you don't know the cod function. It's a, a function one of this undergrads in my class uh, this spring, uh, this winter, and I. Uh, made up together, um, and we we explored it in uh, sort of various incarnations of the chat GPT models, um, and we found that GPT-4 was actually quite good at using this concept. Uh, we would introduce it to it, and it could use it um, to answer new questions, just like you did. Um, so the, you know, when it comes to answering what is, um, 10 mod seven, it could be that that, the answer to that question is sort of wired into the connection weights so that the network doesn't have to query any previous information in its context to answer that question. It's just spitting that answer out right now through its connection weights to predicting the answer. But in the case of the cod function, that can't be true because we didn't allow the connection weights in the network to change when between the time we presented the information in context and asked it to answer the question. So the models are frozen. They're not changing their connection weights. They're just using this in-context representation to solve the problem. And I, I, it, this feels like a characteristic of human thought. You were able to exhibit it of using information that's to presented to you just once in context to give an answer to a question you couldn't have answered without that given information. Um, and um, so that's the capability that it depends on knowledge in connections, though, in a second-order way. It's like the network has to learn how to use the learned connections it formed in the process of being trained on this huge corpus of data to be able to take new information presented to it in context and use it appropriately to guide its thought without making any new connection weight changes to store that information. Uh, and that, that's a kind of second level of, it's like an emergent capability of a connectionist model that it can learn to do that kind of thing. It had to learn it. It wasn't built into it. And these papers, this little literature I was telling you about is exploring, you know, what kinds of aspects of the training regime of the model 
encourage it to be able to use the information in context as opposed to like direct memorization in its connection weights. Uh, and that's um, an important line of work that um, is just, just beginning, I think. Okay, well, Jay, I have plenty more questions about the the gap, I suppose, we could put it this way, between neural networks and our pioneering scientists and mathematicians. And then we haven't even gotten to mathematical cognition, sadly. But in the interest of time, I just want to ask one more question. Uh, because at the outset, you said that you were interested in psychology, at least on one level, because you wanted uh, to understand, for instance, why it was so difficult to ask women out, and you're not the only one there. But I'm wondering whether your work in these subsequent decades has shed light on this level of at least what seems like quite basic questionings about questions about what it's like to be human, or if your work has really been at a much uh, sort of lower level of cognition than this, and you're still maybe a bit more in the dark about why it's so difficult to ask women out. <laughs> well, I think it's not so much that uh, it was at the wrong level as that it wasn't the particular aspect that I ended up focusing on. I guess I would say that um, I left my more affective and um, uh, yeah, sort of social interpersonal sort of um, questions about human nature in favor of um, things uh, that are a little bit more in what we might call the cold cognitive realm, but um, I wouldn't say it's a matter of the level of analysis. Uh, Joe, just to repeat, uh, we did that work with Rav that I told you about before on applying some of our uh, models to value-based decision-making. And I think that that work shed some light in that kind of area. Um, and um, I feel like neural networks have certainly shed a lot of light on, or certainly uh, maybe, maybe they haven't answered all the questions yet. I wouldn't you never know when you've got an answer, I feel like, but it's certainly elaborated and enriched the space of ideas about how our minds could um, actually give rise to the ability to have a mathematical thought or articulate a principle. Um, and uh, so I feel like I have at least been working on those more emergent questions, even if we haven't got final answers to them. Well, this has been really fun for me. I know we didn't get into the super nitty gritty technical details for you, but for a more general 
intellectually inclined audience. I think this was just the perfect level of technicality. So thanks for diving into some of your work with me. I, I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it too. Hold on, Geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so. Mm-hmm.